stuff for you today. We're going to have a conversation about right to work. Uh, Adam is going to be talking to you about some news from the Department of Justice uh, from Louisville, Kentucky and the uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, So we'll go ahead and just jump into it uh, with this conversation about right to work. You know, we have uh, we have segments every now and then that, that for some may be repetitive and elementary, but uh, for others, uh, other people are just coming into this stuff uh, as a beginner, and they haven't heard these conversations, um, and uh, or maybe they haven't heard them in the same way, and and so it's worth coming back to some of these conversations every now and then, uh, every now and then, and one of those conversations is about right to work uh, because it really is one of those things that uh, was named so well uh, even though it is not at all descriptive of what it does <laughs> and so you know Adam talk to us about uh, about right to work I mean you know in what ways is it misleading in what ways is, is the name of the policy misleading and, and what does it actually do yeah, so I mean, right to work is a misleading term. It does not actually have anything to do with a person's right to a job. You know, right to work sounds pretty good. It almost sounds like a job guarantee, right? If I have a right to work, I assume y'all gonna put me to work somewhere, mm, right? That's right. what I would assume. But of course, that's not what right to work means. Right to work refers to state laws that prohibit unions from receiving quote-unquote fair share fees from workers who are represented by the union and covered by a collective bargaining agreement, but not a member of the union. Mm. Okay, so this, this clarify this. In fair share states, so not right-to-work states, in fair share states, Unions and employers can negotiate rules that require all workers covered by a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement, to either pay union dues if they want to be a member of the union, or if they don't want to be a member, to pay a fair share fee. And the reason they do that is because it costs. It costs. If you're still covered by the contract and you're still represented by the union, you don't have to join but you're still getting those benefits, right? It's not the same as being a member, but you're still getting some representation and coverage from the contract. You benefit from the work of the union. It is only fair to pay a fair share. Uh, at least it's the way I see it. Uh, it seems pretty reasonable so that you don't have people who uh, are taking a free ride on the mm. union's dime. And unfortunately, that's what we have in right-to-work states. That's what they like here in right-to-work states. The politicians think that workers should get to take a free ride on the union's hard work, that you should be able to receive representation from the union, that you should benefit from a collective bargaining agreement contract from the union, but you shouldn't have to compensate the union uh, in exchange in any way or or form. So in right-to-work states, the fair share agreements are, are illegal. Okay, that's what right to work ultimately means. It means that fair share agreements are legal. And just, again, to emphasize, the fair share agreements are negotiated between employers and unions. Uh, 
okay? It's not the government that steps in and says, oh, you must pay a fair share fee. No, it's something that is negotiated in a contract. Uh, unions and employers have give and take in the contract negotiation process, and naturally unions would like to see fair share fees where it's permissible uh, because it makes sense. But again, in right-to-work states, the fair share agreements, they're illegal. In all states, unions are required by law to represent all workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement, regardless of whether the worker is a member of the union. Okay? So in right-to-work states, <clears throat> unions still have to provide the representation, but workers are not required to pay a fair share fee for the representation. <clears throat> that creates the free rider problem that weakens unions. And so with that, I mean, that obviously creates, uh, you know, I mean, the weakened unions make it, it makes it more difficult for unions to function. And so with right. that, we do see that states with, with right to work laws generally have lower rates of unionization. Absolutely. Um, yeah. In fact, the 17 states with the lowest union density rates, they all have right to work laws. <clears throat> and so... You know, these low union density states typically have, what else? Lower wages, less robust public benefits. So, you know, it, it is all connected. It's not a coincidence that right-to-work states have lower rates of unionization, and it's not a coincidence that states with less unions are worse on pretty much any measurement, right? Mm -hmm. For working people, at least. Uh, it's worse in terms of wages, and it's worse in terms of the state, uh, the quality of life and the public benefits provided in the state. And so <clears throat> that's what right to work means. It's not about a right to a job. Uh, it's not about freedom. It has nothing to do with freedom. It is a tactic by the employer and the government in collusion with one another to weaken unions, to require unions to take care of people who do not have to pay any sort of compensation in exchange. Right. And, you know, nowhere else do employers think that's a good philosophy, hmm. that you should get to take a free ride, right? Employers don't like that. They At least that's not what they claim, okay? So, you know, most in most scenarios in our society, if you receive a benefit, a service of some kind, you have to exchange something Right. You have to provide compensation. You have to provide your own service in exchange, whatever it may be. So it is a very unique situation that unions are subjected to where they have all the obligations, but none of the benefits right. uh, of, of, of these workers who choose not to join. And I'm saying all this not to demonize the workers who choose not to join. That's their choice. Of course, it's a choice whether or not you want to join the union. But I think a fair share fee is a totally reasonable thing to negotiate in a contract, and it's totally reasonable that employers and unions should be able to negotiate that in their contracts if they so choose, if that's what's ratified by both sides of the negotiation. Mm. Uh, it's big government getting in the way of these right. negotiations through right to work. Uh, and there's a lot more we could say there about right to work and, and its racist legacy and the way it's been connected to uh, you know, white supremacy in the South in particular. Uh, you know, again, it's no coincidence that the South, by and large, is right to work. Uh, and the anti-union campaigns of, of old were very, very racially tinged, uh, mm -hmm. to put it mildly. So, you know, there's a lot of connections there between the legacy of racism and right to work laws. Um, and one other aspect of this discussion is that right to work often means is often, uh, you know, considered something else. Right to work and at-will employment are two different concepts, okay? But a lot of times people will say right to work as if it means the same right. thing as at-will employment. And it is actually two different things. So at-will employment means an employee can be fired for any legal reason and does not have to be given a reason or a warning. <clears throat> Unions fight for due process. Right. We fight against at will employment uh, and typically in union contracts, you may have a probationary period, mm. some months, some years 
uh, where you work and you are at will during that time to at least maybe largely at will. You may have some rights uh, in that period, uh, but then you get due process after the probationary period or you get tenure, you know, maybe if you're a teacher. Uh, and all that means is due process. That means you can still be fired, but the employer has to have a good reason for it. Right. They have to have just cause. And there are a variety of different things that could get you fired uh, and that are considered to be just cause. Uh, right. So an employee who is always late to work, an employee who's drunk at work, those things, you know, due process aside, if the employer can prove it, okay, they can do what they're allowed to do within mm -hmm. the contract, within the rules agreed upon by both sides for employee discipline. So at-will employment is the default. Right. It's the default here in the South. It's, you know, it so is the default the everywhere in the country, is yeah. my understanding, except for like Montana. <laughs> right, right. So at-will employment is the default option. That's why unions are so important in the workplace so that you can move beyond at-will and actually have a little bit of security and know that your boss can't just fire you at a whim, but would actually have to make a case for why you deserve to be fired, would actually have to give you some notification in advance, uh, that there's a, you know, a process to move through to get rid of you. Uh, because I can tell you, having represented workers in both statuses, uh, it is so much better for the worker that they have due process. The at-will employment is very, very harmful to employees. Uh, but I wanted to put, put that out there because a lot of times people use at-will and right-to-work as if they're the same thing uh, and kind of interchange those terms. And, you know, I've heard it plenty of times said, oh, well, yeah, this is Alabama. It's right to work. They can fire you for anything. Mm. And you're right. You're half right. <laughs> they right. can fire you for anything. Uh, but it's not because it's right to work necessarily, though. On a deeper level, yeah, I mean, that's part of it, right? Because we are an anti-union state, we have weak laws to protect workers. So there is some truth to that statement, but that's, you know, typically not what people mean. People are confusing at-will employment with right to work. Uh, but at-will employment is very, very, you know, arbitrary. And I have personally, you know, represented workers who were at-will and who were, you know, fired for stupid reasons and in some cases for no reason whatsoever uh people who were loyal employees who did a good job who had great evaluations who show up to work on a friday and next thing you know security is walking them to their car all right and never told why ever never mm. the only chance they may have to find out why is if they file an eeoc claim right because the law does say any legal reason Right. It's still against the law to discriminate against people. You cannot fire someone because of a protected category in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Right. So an employer is not supposed to fire someone because of their race or their gender or their religion or ethnicity or disability status or age over 40. Um, those are protected categories. But again, in a at-will employment state, if that's the default, good luck proving that. Right. We may know, like the the worker may know they were fired for discriminatory reasons. The union rep may know they're fired for discriminatory reasons. Any common sense person may know someone's fired for discriminatory reasons. But that doesn't mean you can prove it, especially proving it in front of a reactionary judge in a state like Alabama. That is right to work. That is anti-union, and that is anti-worker in its legal framework. So. That's right to work. That's at will employment. And, you know, just to spend a, a bit longer on the hypocrisy of the um, uh, of the uh, quote unquote small government politicians who push right to work laws. And, and we spoke about this actually a couple of weeks ago in regards to the fight between DeSantis and Disney. I mean, uh, Ronald DeSantis is explicitly going after Disney and attempting to increase the size of government and make them pay more taxes and put more red tape on them uh, and 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 make sure that they have uh, that they have to go through more uh, government approvals before they can begin building and stuff like this and this is and and you know this is all of those things 
I'm totally fine with. I'm fine, and I think it's bizarre that a corporation has been basically allocated this huge slot of land in Florida that they are able to run as a corporate fiefdom. Uh, I think that's bad. I also think it's bad that they don't pay very many taxes to the state of Florida. I think it would be good for the state of Florida to get more taxes from Disney. Uh, but the, the fight there really just goes to show that, you know, there is not actually a principled position on the Republican side of small government. Uh, they only have that position when it will hurt working people. So they have that position, for example, when it comes to minimum wage laws. Mm -hmm. If the government wants to mandate a minimum wage that is higher than it already is, some of them don't want there to be a minimum wage at all. Uh, you know, some people are, uh, you know, uh, are enough of a freak to want that. Uh, and some don't want it to increase. And they say that it is that they oppose it because they oppose big government. Other people, uh, or the same people, oppose increasing safety regulations because why they oppose big government. And yet, the same people that, uh, that oppose increased safety regulations, the same people that oppose uh, increasing the minimum wage, are in favor of the state coming in between the workers and the employer and saying to them, no, you cannot, in a private contract negotiation, agree to both parties you cannot agree to a fair share clause. You just can't agree. It is illegal to enforce a fair share clause. It is Ill illegal to enforce a representation fee. That is what we as the government are saying to you two private parties, the workers and the employer. Uh, and that is, I mean, that is definitionally government intervention in the private marketplace. Right. And yet <clears throat> they support it. They support it. And so I say that not to try to convince you that I am, in fact, the principled small government person. I am not a principled small government person. I think that the government ought to be as big as it needs to be to best support the <laughs> the needs of working people. Sometimes it depends. Sometimes it depends. Sometimes the state would be better if it were shrunk. Sometimes it would be better if the state were grown. I acknowledge that, but the people on the other side of this argument do not acknowledge that, but their, in fact, their true position is just the opposite of mine. They support a small state when it's, uh, when it is beneficial for who? Not the workers, but the businesses, but the bosses, but the elites, the their rich campaign folks, donors. their campaign donors. Right. And on the same, uh, uh, you know, the other side of the same coin is that they support a large state. They support the burgeoning of the state, the increased uh, uh, encroachment of the state in our lives, in our negotiations, in the private sector when it benefits their corporate benefactors. Right. And that's exactly what right to work is. That is uh, an encroachment of government into private negotiations, which I do not have a principled opposition to. It's just important to understand what it is because these people will try to obfuscate and, uh, and, and not be explicit about what's going on. And so, you know, we think it's important that people, we think that it's actually important that people know what going, what's going on. Right. So. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and there's a lot more to be said there about, you know, right wing hypocrisy about the size of government. I mean, after all, these are the exact same people who say, yes, uh, government should not be big enough to enact safety regulations to protect you on the job or to raise your wage. The government needs to be small in those situations. Oh, but when the police murder someone, that's okay. Right. Uh, when we have paramilitary-style forces raiding houses uh, and deporting people in very cruel situations, very cruel conditions, um, when we have violence enacted by the state, that's okay. The, the small government arguments never come out from these folks when it's that situation. Right. The small right. government arguments never come into play when we're talking about the surveillance of the country and our population. Right. And there's a lot more you could get into there. But so, yeah, that, that hypocrisy is worth pointing out in terms of right to work and what the actual definition of the word means. So, you know, right to work, 
just means that fair share fees are banned by big government in your particular state, <laughs> and it's banned because it is a way to weaken unions, to make unions have to represent people who pay them nothing in exchange, right? If LeBron James decides to drop out of the NBA Players Association today, mm. he can drop out of the union. He doesn't have to be a member of the union. After all, he's the, probably the richest player in the league. He doesn't have to belong. But guess what? He's still covered by the contract. And if he right. gets in trouble, he still gets to call them, and they still have to represent him. That was the example I used with high school students, was LeBron. Mm. I mean, that's about as visible a union member as I can find. Uh, and again, he doesn't have to join the union. That's his choice to join or not to join. But we're saying that it's a reasonable reasonable scenario for the union and the employer to negotiate a fair share agreement. It's just unfortunate that, you know, hip hypocritical right-wingers disagree with that uh, because they fear worker power in the form of collective organization and they fear the political influence that unions can have as they grow. still listening to the valley labor report this is overtime our online only section of the show uh, we are only online for overtime youtube and facebook free of the fcc censors uh, this is a weird episode uh, as we mentioned jacob is getting married today so this is a pre-recorded episode and it's been pre-recorded in uh, multiple segments frankly uh, that we're having to cobble together uh, so a little bit of a different episode today. Sorry about any weirdness. Uh, we're doing the best we can. We're just trying to make sure we can still bring fresh content this week, uh, even with uh, being a little bit busy this weekend. So with that, uh, with all that out of the way, uh, we've talked about right to work and how it impacts Alabama. I wanted to talk about something else in Alabama from the Department of Justice. And uh, there's a new uh, article that is out by the Associated Press. The AP has put out an article called DOJ, Alabama Ignored Sewer Issues Harmed Black Residents. The U.S. Department of Justice on Thursday said an environmental justice probe found Alabama engaged in a pattern of inaction and neglect regarding the risk of raw sewage for residents in an impoverished Alabama county and announced a settlement agreement with the state. The Federal Departments of Justice and Health and Human Services announced the results of the environmental justice probe and a settlement agreement with state health officials to address long-standing wastewater sanitation problems in Lowndes County, a high-poverty county between Selma and Montgomery. The agreement is the result of the department's first environmental justice investigation under Title VII or Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division said it will not be the last because, quote, the fight for environmental justice is an urgent one, and the effects of, climate, of the climate crisis have exacerbated the health risk faced by marginalized communities. For generations, black rural residents of Lowndes County have lacked access to basic sanitation services. As a result, these residents have been exposed to raw sewage in their neighborhoods, their yards, their playgrounds, schools, and even inside their own homes, Clark said. The Department of Justice did not accuse the state of violating federal civil rights law, but it said it found two areas of concern. The potential use of fines to punish people with inadequate home systems and what it called inadequate action to assess and address the potential health risk from raw sewage. The Alabama Department of Public Health agreed to a number of changes, including the creation of a comprehensive plan for the region and a moratorium on fines. The federal department agreed to suspend their investigation as long as the state complies with the settlement terms. State Health Officer Scott Harris said Thursday that his department welcomes the agreement, although he disputes the allegation that the problem has been neglected by the state agency. The agreement largely encompasses actions the state was already taking or working toward, he said. Alabama lawmakers agreed to use a portion of the state's pandemic relief funds through the American Rescue Plan for water and sewage projects, 
with some funds dedicated for high-needs projects. We have been aware of these problems for a long time. They've lasted for generations, Harris said. It's only just now, thanks to the American Rescue Plan funding, that the state has had any ability to begin to address them at all. Wastewater problems are well documented in Lowndes County, a county of about 10,000 people, where 72% of residents are black and 28% live in poverty. Before the Civil War, the county was home to cotton plantation owners, where wealthy landowners got rich off the labor of enslaved people. The county later became a center of the struggle for voting rights and civil rights in the 1960s. The region is known as the Black Belt because of the dark, rich soil, but the type of soil also makes it difficult for traditional septic tanks, in which wastewater filters through the ground to function properly. The region's intense poverty and inadequate municipal infrastructure contribute to the problem. Maintaining septic tanks have typically been the responsibility of a homeowner, while local governments maintain sewage systems. Some homes in the rural county, where the median household income is about $31,000, still have straight pipe systems, letting sewage run untreated from home to yard. Environmental justice is a public health issue, and where you live should not determine whether you get sick from basic environmental hazards not faced in other affluent and white communities, Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights Director Melanie Fontes Rayner said in a statement. Harris said similar wastewater problems exist in other areas of the state. Ultimately, these are problems on poverty, and we do have poverty in our state, he said. So that was, again, from the Associated Press. The Department of Justice has said that Alabama ignored sewer issues and harmed black residents in the process. Uh, I do take issue with uh, the chief health officer, Scott Harris. I do take issue with him saying that, you know, they had never had the ability to take action until now, uh, that only with American Rescue Plan funding has there been, you know, the possibility of doing something about this. Uh, and he may be technically correct in terms of his department. That could be true. I, I can't dispute that. I don't know enough about his budget from year on year uh, to dispute that. But the broader point is that the Alabama political leadership has chosen not to do anything about it for all these years. We have long known about these problems. The United Nations has pointed out these problems and has said publicly that parts of Alabama are living in third world level conditions. Okay, that's not a secret. We've long known about that. Alabama legislators who only have two jobs, which is to pass the general fund budget and to pass the education trust fund budget. They've long known about these issues. So I understand what, you know, Harris is saying there. But I, I think it's really easy to misinterpret that comment and let these folks off the hook. Uh, we absolutely could have done a lot more as a state and could have done it a long time ago. Uh, so we'll see how this settlement agreement pans out and, you know, whether or not it actually produces the results that we need to see. But uh, it's long past time that some action be taken down in Lowndes County. Uh, it is just, you know, just it's, it's disgusting to think that we have so many of our fellow Alabamians that do not have adequate sewage systems in place. It's just really, it's it's beyond the pale in, in the year 2023. So, uh, you know, glad to see some action by the Department of Justice. I'm going to withhold my opinion uh, until we can kind of see how this settlement agreement is shaking out and what the state of Alabama is going to do and, and, and all the details of the agreement. But definitely wishing much uh, improvement in that area. Also had another update, uh, this time from uh, Washington, D.C., but from the White House instead of the Department of Justice. So we, re we recently brought you a report from the National Domestic Workers Alliance, which was applauding the Biden administration's proclamation of April as Care Workers Recognition Month. Well, the White House has followed up with this symbolic move with a new executive order that is garnering praise from the NDWA, who released the following statement. National Domestic Workers Alliance statement on the Biden-Harris administration's historic executive actions to improve care affordability and care jobs. 
On April 18th, the Biden-Harris administration announced the most comprehensive set of executive actions to improve care in the history of the United States. President Joe Biden signed the order at an event with family caregivers, people with disabilities, older adults, and early childhood and long-term care workers, including workers who are members of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. This order includes more than 50 directives to federal agencies to utilize existing funding to expand access to quality, affordable care and provide support to family caregivers and care workers, including domestic workers. A. Jin Pu, president of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Jen Stowe, executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, released the following statement in response. Quote, this is a tremendous milestone for families and workers across the country. This unprecedented slate of executive actions represents the most comprehensive set of actions any president has ever taken to improve the care infrastructure and support families and care workers. We applaud the Biden-Harris administration's historic commitment to addressing the growing demand for affordable, high-quality care services for our loved ones while ensuring care workers are afforded the protections, wages, and dignity they deserve on the job. This could not have come at a more critical time. As the care workforce crisis intensifies across the country and families continue to struggle to afford care, this set of executive actions marks the all-in commitment we need to make sure care jobs are good jobs and that Americans can access care for generations to come. It is a major step forward toward modernizing our care system. These executive actions recognize the critical importance of care work, including paid and, un and unpaid responsibilities such as child care, elder care, and disability care. It acknowledges the challenges care workers face, who are often undervalued and underpaid, and aims to improve their wages, benefits, and working conditions. The order also focuses on expanding affordable access to care services, particularly for low-income communities, promoting continued innovation and collaboration in the care sector. It recognizes that care work is essential to the economy and that investment in this sector can lead to job creation and economic growth. The magnitude of these investments cannot be overstated. The administration is leading us to the once-in-a-generation investments needed to improve the lives of millions and toward building a more equitable and sustainable care infrastructure in this country. It's our hope that today's promise is inspiration for our country's decision makers and leaders to prioritize care in all they do. Our families, our jobs, and our future depend on bold actions like today's executive order. And care is a need that we can no longer overlook. We look forward to, we look forward to continuing our efforts alongside the White House and all of our nation's leaders toward ensuring that every person in this country has access to affordable care, and that every care worker receives the dignity and respect they deeply deserve. In an unprecedented show of unity of workers, families, consumers of care, and leaders across the care economy, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, SEIU, AFL-CIO, AFT, AFSME, Community Change, Moms Rising, Care in Action, Care Can't Wait, and a number of the care movement's congressional champions gathered in Washington, D.C. for the Care Workers Can't Wait Summit on April 18th and 19th to celebrate this announcement and chart the way forward. The announcement also comes on the heels of the White House proclamation designating the month of April as Care Workers Recognition Month. This recognition is particularly meaningful in light of a long history of exclusion of some workers from basic protection in our nation's labor laws. And so the National Domestic Workers Alliance is the leading voice for dignity and fairness for millions of domestic workers in the United States. They were founded back in 2007. Uh, they work for respect, recognition, and inclusion in labor protections for domestic workers, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of color. NDWA is powered by over 70 affiliate organizations and local chapters and by a growing membership base of nannies, house cleaners, and care workers in over 20 states. So... That's the NDWA statement on this new executive order out from Joe Biden and the White House. Uh, certainly sounds very positive based on their statement. Um, I have not had a chance to really dig into it and see, you know, if it lives up to these lofty words. Um, you know, I know when I, I talked about it earlier in terms of uh, Joe Biden and the administration making this April Care Worker Recognition Month, you know, it's a nice symbol, uh, but 
it is just a symbol, right? Uh, getting a special proclamation or getting a special recognition month doesn't pay the bills, right? Um, you know, it's Teacher Appreciation Week, right? And, and getting uh, candy and, uh, you know, balloons or whatever on Teacher Appreciation Week doesn't make those teachers' class sizes any smaller. Uh, it doesn't guarantee them collective bargaining rights. And so same with, you know, declaring a, a recognition month. Uh, it's easy for that to be an empty gesture. So I will say uh, I am happy to see that this gesture was followed up by some action. Obviously, it would be preferable if Congress were taking action, but we know Congress is incredibly dysfunctional and basically nothing is going to pass, at least nothing positive. Uh, it doesn't appear. So, you know, in, in the short term uh, or in, in the absence of congressional action being realistic right now, uh, some executive orders may be, you know, the best we can hope for in certain areas of policy. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. But I did want to bring that update from the National Domestic Workers Alliance about this, uh, this new executive order that is at least supposed to support domestic care workers in this country. My next story, unfortunately, is about child labor. Uh, we have discussed child labor quite a bit on this program, and that's because it keeps happening a lot across the South and across this country. It's a shame, really. Uh, I think the labor movement felt like we won on this issue about a century ago, and yet here we are uh, with child labor running rampant across the country. And it's pretty regular that we get these press releases from the U.S. Department of Labor where they have busted more employers for illegally employing children. Today's story of bosses behaving badly, this would be three McDonald's franchisees in Kentucky who are paying $212,000 in fines after federal investigations fined 305 minors, including 10-year-olds, working illegally. The Louisville area franchisees employed minors to work later, longer than law permits. According to the press release from the Department of Labor, working in a kitchen late at night near dangerous cooking equipment is a reality for many adults in the food service industry. But finding 10-year-old kids in such a work environment is a cause for concern and action by the U.S. Department of Labor. Investigators from the department's Wage and Hour Division found two 10-year-old workers at Louisville McDonald's restaurant among many violations of federal labor laws committed by three Kentucky McDonald's franchise operators. The investigations are part of the division's ongoing effort to stop child labor abuses in the southeast region. D the division investigated Bauer Food LLC, Archways Richwood LLC, and Bell Restaurant Group, LLC, three separate franchisees that operate a total of 62 McDonald's locations across Kentucky, Indiana, Maryland, and Ohio, and found they employed 305 children to work more than the legally permitted hours and perform tasks prohibited by law for young workers. In all, the investigations led to assessments of $212,544 in civil money penalties against the employers. Too often, employers fail to follow the child labor laws that protect young workers, explained Wage and Hour Division District Director Karen Garnett Civils in Louisville, Kentucky. Under no circumstances should there ever be a 10-year-old child working in a fast food kitchen around hot grills, ovens, and deep fryers. The division's investigations found the following. Bauer Food LLC, a Louisville-based operator of 10 McDonald's locations, employed 24 minors under age 16 to work more than legally permitted hours. These children sometimes worked more hours a day or week than the law permits, whether or not school is in session. Investigators also determined two 10-year-old children were employed, but not paid, and sometimes worked as late as 2 a.m. Below the minimum age for employment, they prepared and distributed food orders, cleaned the store, worked at the drive through window, and operated a register. The division also learned that one of the two children was allowed to operate a deep fryer, a prohibited task for workers under 16 years old. 
The division assessed $39,711 in civil money penalties to address these child labor violations. Wow. Ten years old. Archway's Richwood LLC, a Walton-based operator of 27 McDonald's locations, allowed 242 minors between age 14 and 15 to work beyond the allowable hours. Most worked earlier or later in the day than the law permits and more than three hours on school days. The division assessed the employer with $143,566 in civil money penalties for their violations. Bell Restaurant Group 1, LLC, is a Louisville-based operator of four McDonald's locations and part of Beard and Cat Management, Inc., a larger enterprise that includes Jesse Bell 1, Jesse Bell 5, and Bell Restaurant Group 2, which operates an additional 20 locations in Maryland, Indiana, and Kentucky. The division found the employer allowed 39 workers, ages 14 and 15, to work outside of and for more hours than the law permits. Some of these children worked more than the daily and weekly limits during school days and school weeks, and the employer allowed two of them to work during school hours. To address the child labor violations, the division assessed the employer $29,267 in civil money penalties. Investigators also found the employer systemically failed to pay workers overtime wages they were due, and as a result, the division recovered $14,730 in back wages and liquidated damages for 58 workers. Wow. Imagine that. An employer who is illegally violating child labor laws is also violating overtime laws. And yet, $29,267 is what they paid in civil money penalties for their violations of child labor law. Not sure what if they had to pay any fines for their violations of overtime. Um, again, it says the division recovered 14730 in back wages and liquidated damages for 58 workers. Federal child labor regulations limit the types of jobs minor-aged employees can perform and the hours they can work. Hours lim hour limits for 14- and 15-year-olds include work must be performed outside of school hours, no more than three hours on a school day, including Fridays, and no more than eight hours on a non-school day, no more than 18 hours during a school week, and no more than 40 hours during a non-school week. No earlier than 7 a.m. and no later than 7 p.m. except between June 1st and Labor Day when the evening hour is extended to 9 p.m. We are seeing an increase in federal child labor violations, including allowing minors to operate equipment or handle types of work that endangers them or employs them for more hours or later in the day than federal law allows, said Garnett Civils. An employer who hires young workers must know the rules. An employer, parent, or young worker with questions can contact us for help understanding their obligations and rights under the law. While most cases with child labor violations involve minors working more or later than the law permits, the division found 688 minors employed illegally in hazardous occupations in fiscal year 2022, the highest annual count since fiscal year 2011. Among those was a 15-year-old minor injured while using a deep fryer at a McDonald's in Morristown, Tennessee, in June 2022. One child injured at work is one too many. Child labor laws exist to ensure that when young people work, the job does not jeopardize their health, well-being, or education, added Garnett Civils. The Wage and Hour Division offers multiple tools to help employers understand their responsibilities and offers confidential compliance assistance to anyone with questions about how to comply with the law by calling the agency's toll-free helpline at 866-4US-WAGE. That's 487-9243. The department can speak with callers in more than 200 languages. The division also recently published Seven Child Labor Best Practices for employers. So, uh, more child labor violations happening right here in the South. Uh, uh, truly a shame. And while I appreciate these folks at the Department of Labor for their investigations and for their fines and for the you know uncovering this and taking action, uh, 
I don't think I'm the only one who, who reads these numbers and reads these penalties and thinks that is far too little, uh, particularly when we have human beings being thrown in cages for all sorts of crimes across our country and across our state, uh, and yet we have employers who can routinely violate the law uh, with a slap on the wrist. So, more child labor, folks. Uh, we've got to beat it back. We've already done it once. We've got to do it again. We have to. <laughs> we have to protect the kids. We have to protect the kids. It's funny, uh, or not so funny, perhaps, that uh, many of the same right-wingers who are obsessively calling people groomers and accusing folks of grooming children for nefarious purposes also tend to be the exact same people who are cool with illegally employing children. Um, Just a little coincidence. So I want to stick with the South here uh, and talk about a new union that is uh, rising here in the South. Uh, And I want to point you to Kim Kelly, our dear friend, uh, writer, radical organizer, Kim Kelly. She writes an op-ed column for Teen Vogue called No Class. And in that column, she connects worker struggles and the current state of the American labor movement with its storied and sometimes bloodied past. Uh, And this article is actually a little bit older. It came out back uh, towards the end of March, March 20th. uh, And it's something that we haven't talked about on the show. So I wanted to make sure we did talk about it this weekend for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is because, well, Kim is a great writer, so it's a great article. Uh, You'll enjoy reading it. But more importantly, uh, the subject matter. We have a new union effort among service workers here in the South. And if ever there was an industry that needed to be unionized and in a region that needed to be unionized, it's service workers in the Southeast. So the Union of Southern Service Workers is organizing low-wage workers across industries. And again, this is Kim Kelly's column back in March in Teen Vogue. I'm going to quote just a little bit from this article to give you a flavor of, of the article. Uh, and I will tell you that we are reaching out to folks from the USSW, the Union of Southern Service Workers. Um, so we're going to be reaching out to them and hopefully have some of them on the show very soon because we would definitely love to, to highlight their efforts and lift up their efforts and appreciate what they're doing. Uh, so just to quote a bit from Kim. Quote, if you truly want to understand the history of organized labor in this country, you must look to the South, specifically to what black workers and other workers of color have accomplished there despite every conceivable obstacle. Nowadays, states such as Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and North Carolina are home to anti-union right-to-work legislation that makes it extremely difficult for workers to organize. Corporate-friendly politicians have actively worked to disenfranchise and oppress poor and working-class people, especially the most marginalized. A century ago, things weren't much different, but like today, those workers fought back. They protested, picketed, formed unions, and went on strike. Many of them were considered unorganizable by labor leadership and labor opponents alike, a status pinned to various groups of workers, typically casual, low-income workers of color, recent immigrants, or both, throughout the centuries. In 1935, when the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, a landmark labor law that gave most workers the legal right to organize, bargain, and strike, was passed, it included several glaring omissions. By excluding domestic workers and agricultural workers, many of whom were black, particularly in the South, the NLRA made it clear that for all its New Deal-era progressivism, The politicians who passed it had decided that some workers simply weren't worth fighting for. Fortunately, those workers took matters into their own hands and organized anyway. From the communist tenant farmers in Alabama, described in historian Robin D.G. Kelly's classic Hammer and Hoe, to Dorothy Lee Bowden and the National Domestic Workers Union of America in Atlanta. Now the Union of Southern Service Workers, USSW, is determined to follow in their footsteps by organizing today's unorganizable Southern workers. 
And so the union was co-founded by over 150 retail, fast food, restaurant, and care workers who live and work throughout the South. USSW went public in November, but it has been built on a decade of prior organizing work by Raise Up the South, the southern branch of the Fight for 15 and a Union campaign, and backed by the Service Employees International Union, or SEIU. Staff organizers provide support when desired, but the new union is an entirely worker-led effort and did not bother filing for recognition from the National Labor Relations Board before going public. As far as USSW is concerned, a union is a group of workers organizing collectively, and that is exactly who they are. The Ignite Committee, a group of workers from different jobs in different states who were deeply involved with Raise Up, helped create the vision for the new union, 25-year-old Jamila Allen tells Teen Vogue. She is a founding member of USSW, has been involved with the Rise Up since 2018, and currently works at the Durham, North Carolina location of local fast food chain Freddy's Frozen Custard and Steak Burgers. Our goal for our union is to get our voices on the job and make sure workers are heard. A real voice on the job means that we would have the power to discuss with the bosses and negotiate terms about things like pay raises, health insurance, and safety conditions. And so Kim goes on to describe some of the uh, brave sisters and brothers who are involved in the USSW. Uh, it is a multiracial and anti-racist organization and uh, really it harkens back to a long history of workers organizing interracially here in the South trying to build interracial people power. And so I uh, wanted to lift up that article by Kim Kelly again, uh, came out in March in Teen Vogue, in case you missed it. Uh, we look forward to hopefully talking to some folks from the Union of Southern Service Workers. Uh, we met some of these folks uh, through Raise Up the South at the Troublemaker School back in October uh, that was here in Alabama. So really cool folks, uh, really proud of what they're doing and really appreciate what they're doing, trying to organize in the service industry here in the South. So if you are in the service industry, and you're in the South, the Union of Southern Service Workers is looking for you. Reach out to them. Uh, it may be worth you having a conversation. Uh, even if you think a union is not necessarily in the cards right now for your store, your particular you know, work site, maybe you think it's not possible, just reach out to them anyway. Just reach out to them. It can't hurt to at least have a conversation and get connected with this new union effort. Uh, so really appreciate what they're doing, sending all my love and solidarity to the Union of Southern Service Workers. And I wanted to close overtime today with a very brief mention of some of what's been happening with the Alabama Democratic Party. So the Alabama Democrats held their big state meeting uh, this past weekend, uh, May 6th. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend an article by uh, Allender Roca uh, from the Alabama Reflector. And we actually republished that article on tvlr.fm. Uh, you can check it out there. You can check it out on uh, the alabamareflector.com. It was a great article titled Alabama Democrats Eliminate Youth, LGBTQ, Disabled Caucuses at Contentious Meeting. Um, and so, a little bit about the Alabama Reflector. First of all, it's part of State Newsroom, uh, a network of news bureaus supported by grants and a coalition of donors as a 501c3 public charity. Alabama Reflector maintains editorial independence. Contact editor Brian Lyman for questions at info at alabamareflector.com, and you can follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they allow republishing and reposting with permission under a Creative Commons agreement. And so really appreciate that they have that spirit of collaboration and we have been in touch with them and have talked back and forth. Uh, we've republished a couple of their articles. Uh, really good stuff happening there at the Alabama Reflector. Uh, definitely used to read Brian Lyman's work for the Montgomery Advertiser. He was one of the key people to follow on Twitter if you wanted to track Alabama politics, especially in the legislative session. So yeah, really impressed with their new outfit and definitely want to highlight this particular article because it was the best one I saw in terms of covering what happened this past Saturday at the Alabama Democratic Party's meeting. 
So the long and short of it is, uh, as we've talked to you on the show before, there is factional disputes in the party, right? And the Joe Reed caucus, uh, the Joe Reed faction, uh, primarily the Alabama Democratic Conference, ADC, uh, of which Joe Reed is the head, uh, they have gained power back after a brief interlude uh, with, you know, where they were out of power. Uh, a few years ago, um, the DNC stepped in, Doug Jones got involved, uh, new bylaws were, were passed or, you know, implemented uh, that were signed off on by the DNC. It expanded certain caucuses, it changed some of the rules, and uh, the Joe Reed and ADC faction, you know, was was upset by that. Uh, Joe Reed and his, his, you know, ally, Randy Kelly, who is the chair of the party, uh, you know, they believe that it diluted their influence in terms of black political representation inside the party. So there's been fighting back and forth ever since these bylaws were, you know, since before the bylaws. But the bylaws themselves have been a point of contention uh, since they were implemented. And we've seen some hinting at this uh, since, really since Randy Kelly became the chair of the party and, you know, the Reed faction regained power. We've seen them sort of hint at undoing these bylaws, and that's exactly what they did. So they approved new bylaws on Saturday that eliminated the Youth Caucus, the LGBTQ Plus Caucus, and the Disabled Caucus. They also reduced the power of other caucuses, such as the Native American Caucus, the Asian and Pacific Islander Caucus. Um, they even uh, changed the rule in terms of labor representation. A seat that used to be reserved for the AFL-CIO is now no longer reserved for the AFL-CIO. And um, so there were quite a bit of changes. There was also controversy as to whether or not these were even legal uh, moves because for one thing, uh, and photographic evidence tends to back this up, there was accusations that the vote was simply inaccurate, uh, that the yes votes for the new bylaws were not as many as the no votes. And again, if you check the, the photographs on the Alabama Reflector article, you'll see what I'm saying. Uh, there's certainly reasons to be questioned, you know, asking questions about it, certainly. Um, and there was also the issue of this quote-unquote poll tax, uh, at least that's how it was described by Tabitha Eisner, who's the vice chair of the party. People showed up to the meeting and were told they could not, they couldn't vote, they couldn't participate in the meeting. They asked why, and they said, well, you owe $50. And folks were not aware of the $50 fee. Uh, that was news to them. And uh, folks said, okay, well, let me pay you $50. Let me personally hand you $50. Now, can I get my credentials? Can I go on the floor and vote? And they said no. So there were delegates to the state Democratic Executive Committee who were disenfranchised, or at least that's what they're reporting. And, you know, this this is definitely a long-running feud. Um, but I, I got to say, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because complaints have already been filed uh, with the DNC, and there's you know threats of possible litigation over this. Uh, so the the ongoing saga of infighting in the Alabama Democratic Party definitely continues. And uh, I'm working on an article this week to get activist reactions to this meeting and and sort of just check the pulse of what activists on the ground across the state are thinking about the Alabama Democratic Party right now. Uh, I've gotten some really interesting responses and great responses, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, should be coming out any day now. Uh, so, you know, we'll have more to say on this probably next week, uh, especially as those articles come out. But, you know, I wanted to mention it because it is big news in Alabama politics. It is uh, definitely had progressive Alabamian social media all buzz on Twitter and, and Facebook and things like that. Uh, there's been a lot said about it. Um, my own uh, commentary, you know, I, I point you to uh, my series on Alabama political engagement, 
on tvlr.fm, which has gotten a little bit of conversation going, I know. Uh, Some people not so happy with it. Some people uh, felt like it really resonated with them. But, you know, to give you kind of a glimpse of what I discussed in those pieces, uh, I had discussed previously on the show a few months back after the election and, you know, the realities of the fact that only about four in ten Alabamians voted are the realities that I had more libertarians on my ballot than Democrats. Um, you know, I had more unopposed Republicans on my ballot than Democrats. Uh, and then we look at the realities that you have people who are unrepresented currently in Alabama politics, right? 75,000 people voted for Bernie Sanders in this state two different times. They have no voice in Alabama politics. There's about 150,000 union members in the state of Alabama, uh, but you wouldn't know that listening to Alabama politicians, right? The Alabama political class has no interest in labor, uh, and we've seen you know, mostly silence from the Alabama Democratic Party when it comes to some of these really historic labor struggles happening right here in the state of Alabama. So definitely uh, check out those articles on Alabama political engagement, again, on tvlr.fm. We're going to be speaking to more and more activists about this situation and how they feel about it. But uh, certainly the initial reactions I'm getting is that a lot of progressive activists are very, not necessarily surprised, but disappointed by these recent moves, and they feel disenfranchised by these recent moves, and they feel as if the party uh, doesn't want them. And so, you know, to, to Dr. Joe Reed, to Randy Kelly, you have a lot of work to do to convince people to be part of your coalition, uh, because ultimately that is your job, right, to win votes, uh, to win political support. And so seems like you got your work cut out for you uh, because there's a lack of trust and uh, there is, you know, certainly a lot of hard feelings right now. And uh, I I just got to say that for my entire adult lifetime, the Alabama Democratic Party has not been relevant or competitive or viable or functional in any sort of meaningful way. We're talking, you know, over a decade here of incompetence, of being demolished in the election results, of a lack of media presence, a lack of social media presence, a lack of media and social media strategy, a lack of a political program that's being advanced, a lack of training and organizing of uh, supporters. Um, I mean, you name it. Communications, just basic communications, regular emails, right? Even even these fundamental things haven't been happening. Uh, and so we'll see. Stay tuned to that story. It's definitely a developing story. But as a working class activist, as a labor activist, you know, for me, it's just frustrating because the working class people of Alabama deserve political representation. We deserve better than what we have. And right now, we don't have folks in the political class that are fighting for us. Now, you have some legislators that are doing better than others, obviously. You have some legislators that are doing good work, and I don't want to uh, diminish the work they're doing. But let's be honest here. The Alabama GOP has a supermajority. They control all levers of government in the state from the local on up the judicial, the executive, the legislative branches. They have long dominated it. And right now, there's not viable opposition to the far right. And so it's, you know, it's going to be up to us to to organize true interracial people power that can oppose some of this reactionary garbage that is coming from the political class and start to actually improve the lives of everyday you know, working class people in Alabama, because we are the majority. We are the majority working people. We are the biggest group in the state, and it's time we acted like it. So with all that, we're going to wrap things up on overtime this this uh, afternoon. 
A uh, reminder that we also air on Unclaimed Mysteries Radio, which is a Huntsville inter- Huntsville-based internet radio station. You can listen on Live 365. Just search Unclaimed Mysteries Radio. Again, stay tuned to TVLR.fm, where we've got some original uh, commentary and news coming out. Check out Jacob's article uh, within these times called An Explosion, Layoffs, and the End of Paper in J. As they do each month, our friends at Labor Notes are hosting a series of online trainings. Uh, that includes their May workshop, their May stewards workshop on just cause with the great labor lawyer Bob Schwartz. So definitely check that out at labornotes.org. The Alabama International Fringe Festival is a three-day event taking place on May 12th, 13th, and 14th in the River Region of Alabama, centered in Montgomery. That includes a performance of Toll Puddle the Musical, a musical about union struggles in 1800s England. Check out our interview with the director and one of the lead actors that we did last week. Don't forget our new weekly series called Shop Talk, airing online on Thursday mornings. Shop Talk is dedicated to labor education, history, and training. You can check out the live streams on Thursday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Central Time or the podcast a few days later. Uh, We had a great episode of Shop Talk this week with a sister from Revolutions Per Minute podcast radio show uh, who has been actively involved in the Trader Joe union campaign. Uh, And she talked about what to basically how to respond when you lose. And for better or worse, we're going to lose sometimes, right? We're going to lose sometimes as working people. We don't win all the fights that we fight. We, We face a lot of uphill battles. And she so she talked a little bit about that and how we should respond when we lose. So it was a great episode, great discussion. Check it out if you missed it. And if you're not on our email list at tvlr.fm, definitely sign up for that so you can stay up to date. Feel free to leave us a voicemail at 844-899-TVLR. That's 844-899-8857. Don't forget, you can donate or buy our merch at tvlr.fm. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to the Valley Labor Report. So, With all that said, really appreciate y'all tuning in today. Sorry again for the strange episode that may be a little jumbled up, uh, but hopefully you still found value in it. So thanks for listening. All power to the working class.